Good morning. How are we? You like that music? Y'all want to like start dancing when it comes on? <laughs> that was good. Uh, hey, Gomez's, thank you. Uh, we love that. It's encouraging just to see that, uh, to allow us to partner with you to exalt Jesus in your household, uh, I think is important for us. And so uh, the rest of y'all, all right, several of the last times we've done this, we've had multiple kids up here. This time we only had one. There's two in the family, one sick. Do we need to do a sermon series on Song of Solomon next or something like that? And just get the rest of this going, all right? So here we go. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. If you did not know what that meant, it'll come to you. Ask your neighbor. They'll tell you, all right? It's too inappropriate for me to say. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 is where we will be. Uh, we're going to be camped out for a lot of the day there, so go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you, so please feel free to take, keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word, to be able to use that in your own uh, life, in your own quiet times, and so that's uh, our gift to you. You can also follow along on the Uversion app. If you have uh, your smartphone, uh, you can either take that link and put it right into your browser, follow along that way, or in the Uversion uh, app, you type in the Well Austin under events and you can find it that way. Uh, we say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word. We want you to see that we're not just trying to be cute or just trying to make things up, but we really think that, hey, these are the words of God that God would try to, to display to us how he wants us to interact with him and to know him and to love him. And we do that through the scriptures. So um, we want to be looking at that today. Um, as you're turning to Genesis 12, last week we began our series in Abraham, and today we're really picking up in Abraham's life, and we'll do a lot of recapping this week and also looking forward into what God is doing. So uh, Genesis chapter 12, <clears throat> last week we did 1 through 9, so let's pick it up in verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very severe in the land. Now, I actually want to rest on this verse for a little bit because this is actually a really significant verse in Scripture and in Abraham's story as a whole. So last week we see Abraham heard God. Right, like, like he heard the audible voice of God in his heart or from the sky or whatever happened. It doesn't really matter. We know that he heard God speak to him and God promised him all of these blessings. And there were blessings upon blessing. In fact, five of them we said, whereas from Genesis 1 to 11, we see five holistically. There are five blessings in three verses. We see all these promises. There are seven promises and six of them are positive promises. Only one of them is a negative promise. But even that, it's a promise to protect Abraham. And so God has called out Abraham from Ur and gave him all these promises, all these uh, significant events in a lot of ways, beginning to make a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham heard God. And then we see that Abraham was obedient to God. He left Ur and went down to rest in Canaan, and he began to set up altars there and worship God, and he's walking through, and each time God fulfills this promise more and more and more. And so, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, the question that we are supposed to ask in this epic narrative called redemption is... Is Abraham the promised seed? <laughs> like, 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 is he the seed? Here comes God giving him covenants, giving him promises, saying he will have dominion over a land, maybe even over the enemy. And Abraham is obedient to God, and he's walking with God, and he's, he's traveling with God. And then once God brings out all this beauty, all this majesty, all of these promises, there's a famine in the land. Not just any famine in the land. The famine was a severe famine, a very, 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 very bad famine. 
thanks, God. That's what that can feel like, if we're honest, right? Like, like, couldn't God have called Abraham out at a different time? Couldn't he have? Because in case you're not familiar with the narrative, I'm going to play a little bit spoiler here, okay? Abraham gets called when he's 75, and he has a kid when he's 100, That's easy math for most of us. That's 25 years, right, from when God calls out Abram to when God actually fulfills his promise and Abraham has a child. So couldn't God have waited like a little bit longer to call Abraham out? Because if God is eternal as we say he is, that means that he's ahead of time or even in the future. So he sees that there's going to be a famine in the land. Like like couldn't he have waited a couple of months, a couple of years? Because nothing really happened for 25 years anyway. No fulfillment of the promise, couldn't God have waited? Yeah or or no? Not really. Actually, not at all. I don't think God could have waited. God called Abraham on purpose knowing that a famine was going to come. God is the God of all the universe. He's not shocked by this. And so he called him away from all of his support system, from all of his family, from all of his resources, into a middle of a land that he does not know. And then he allowed the famine, maybe even caused the famine, who know, to come onto the land. God called Abraham into trouble in a lot of ways. And if you're a logical person, the next question that's in your heart If you're wrestling with Christianity or even if you're a believer and you don't put on your holy suit but you allow yourself to be a human, okay, like whichever one of those, the logical question is to say, man, why in the world would we want to follow a God that does something like that, right? Like if you saw me like beckoning Micaiah into the street with oncoming traffic, you'd be like, that's not a good dad. (laughs) I don't know if I want to follow his parenting style, right? Like, like, and so obviously it's not that severe. It's not uh, 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 getting hit by a car, but a famine is often in the Middle East, especially at that time, life or death in a lot of ways. Why is God calling Abram out of this? And, and why is this like a positive narrative on God's end? Why is this something that's almost like encouraged to some extent? Because blessings and, and glory and promises, man, hallelujah, sign me up. Right? Famines and droughts and suffering and trial, you can leave that junk at the door. That's how a lot of us feel, okay? It's like when you're in that sweet time of worship. I know a lot of you even got saved in this way. You're at some retreat or something, hands raised, you're crying. Jesus is like, come, follow me. And you're like, I'll give my life to you. And things are great, right? And then like two months later, you're suffering with this deep tragedy. You're like, wait a minute. That's not what I, I signed up for that worship experience over and over and over again, not this suffering, but all throughout scripture, we actually see when God calls people, he does not call them into the fulfillment of all this beauty and promise and blessing, and he actually calls them directly into trouble. God called Abram when he called him on purpose, knowing that a famine was going to come knowing that, hey, he could have waited another five years, another, but that would not create the man that God was trying to create through Abram, through which the promised seed of Isaac and ultimately the promised seed of Christ would eventually come. A lot of us think, wait a minute, my definition of life and God's definition of life is a little bit different. And I would argue with us, it is. It's a lot of bit different, actually. 
In the New Testament, in John 17, chapter, or chapter 17, verse 3, it's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It's Jesus talking. He's praying to the Father, and he says, and this is eternal life. And so we should stop right there because a lot of us, I think, we think, what is eternal life? We think it means living forever. But all of us are going to live forever. Some of us just are not going to live in life forever. We will live in misery, the absence of God, not connected to the true source of blessing, of peace, of fragrance and beauty, we won't be in that presence. So there's eternal life is not living forever. It's something more than that. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know the only true God in the Son, me, whom the Father has sent. That they know God, that they know the Son. This is what eternal life is. In fact, that word know there, gnosko, it actually entails this intimate connection. In fact, it says that Adam knew Eve in the Greek Septuagint, and she conceived and bore Cain. Adam and Eve knew each other. No more, right? I know we only had one kid up here, so we know what I'm talking about here, right? They knew each other, and then they had a kid. This is the same word that's used here, that you would know God, be intimate, be deeply connected to God. This is what eternal life is. It doesn't say that, and this is eternal life, blessing or, 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 or freedom from trial or, or anything like that. No, to know God is eternal life, and this is what God wants, is for us to truly know him, because when we know him, this is when we become whole people, which is what we talked about last week. We become full fully alive, fully human, whom God has created, but this knowledge of God takes from us a submission. It makes us have to be humble. We can't come into the presence of God thinking that we are also God. It's to know the only true God. That's not you and I. That's the Father, right? And that means that it takes us rejecting our self-dependency and our self-sufficiency and rejecting us being God and submitting to the true God. And another way to put this is that God makes us who we are in trials. Trials shows us that we are not the true God, but that he is. And it gets us to release control of our lives and to realize that there's something more than the trial at hand. God is very present with us in them, but really what he's usually trying to do is help us to see him better, to understand him more, to experience him, to know eternal life. Think about Psalm 46. It says that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in a time of need, right? Like God is our refuge. He'll protect us. He's also our strength. He will fight for us. He's a very present help, but it's in need. Or Psalm 23, as most of us know, right? Uh, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I look up in my life and realize, <laughs> right? Most of us know that either from Tupac or from the Psalms, okay? And it's look, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what is that word there? Not over the valley of the shadow of death, not around the valley of the shadow of death, not under it. God doesn't build a bridge and let you walk across the valley of the shadow of death. You are through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is there. God is there with you, but you are still in the valley of the shadow of death. Who wants to sign up for that, right? Like the valley of the shadow of death, we want God as our shepherd who will lead us to green pastures and still waters. And that's true too. That's what that psalm says. But it also says that same shepherd is going to then take us into the valley and walk with us through there. But we will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. We have eternal life. What is the valley of the shadow of death when we are standing next to the author of life? 
Nothing else really matters because we have, we experience, we understand, we are intimate with God. This is what life is. This is what God is trying to show us, that life is not what you and I think life is. It is how he has defined it, which is to be fully submitted to him. But you and I think that life is the absence of trial or that all things go well. Or really, it's our idol and that of comfort. And that this is what life is. That, that when we are most comfortable, that's when we are most alive. No, that's when you are usually most self-sufficient. And you yourself are deciding what is good and what is evil. You're Adam. You're Eve. I'm going to tell you, God, what's good and evil. It's good when I don't suffer, but it's evil when I do suffer. So if I suffer, you're clearly not good, God, because I'm my own self-sovereign. I choose what's right. And so God, in his merciful grace and in his kindness, actually brings us into the valley of the shadow of death sometimes. Why? Because he is there with us in them. Because then he gets for us not to be able to depend on ourselves, but to be able to depend on no one but him. And when we are fully dependent on him, this is when we become fully alive, friends. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, this is hard. Because this is not the message that's often preached. It's come to Jesus and he'll alleviate all your problems. Sometimes you come to Jesus and he'll put you in a famine because God loves you. And really what coming to Jesus is, is giving your life over to him because he is what life is. Think about this, and I don't want to spend all the sermon on this because there's more than just this verse, but this is true in Abraham's life, right? Think about in the New Testament what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 8 through 10. You'll have to turn there. These are all going to be on the screen. I'm going to read a couple of New Testament passages. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Okay, so I don't want to deceive you. I don't want you to think that like, hey, this Christian life is just super awesome. Everything's great. We don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We did not want to live anymore. It was so hard that we were like, I really wish we would die. God, please take me today. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Remember when Paul got saved? He's in the road, he's blinded. God comes in and I says, hey, come and share the gospel with Paul. And he's like, that dude that's been killing all my boys, <laughs> right? Like, like I'm, I'm not about to go share with him. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the kingdom. And you're supposed to read that as a positive thing. <laughs> Who in this American culture reads that as a positive thing? Why is it positive? Keep going. Paul in Romans 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. James tells us, the half-brother of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let, let, allow steadfastness to have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Bruce Walkie, who's a professor at RTS, says this, were God's blessings given to Abraham without suffering, the saint would confound morality with pleasure. Saints, all of us, would serve God for what they could get out of it, a system known as eudaimonism. By 
Interp- or interrupting acts of faith from their rewards with hardships, God saves his people from selfishness and develops such virtues as faith, hope, patience, and upright character. What is he saying? God saves us from ourselves. God saves us from being self-sovereign. When we try to do it ourselves, we pick what is good and what is evil. This suffering is evil. We will not do this. But when we pick it that way, we don't allow suffering to do what it actually does, which produces in us steadfastness or hope or character or all these things that the New Testament lays out, which we know are good things. But the Bible says that those often come through suffering. What we do is we pick the momentary over the eternal, because we think the momentary is what is good. What we do is we pick this person, this relationship over God because we think this is what true good is. We are still Adam and Eve picking the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, trying to display ourselves what good is and what evil is. We would rather have the ease of comfort now than the eternity of heaven. And so we would trade that to get this comfort now. We're not good saviors. We don't carry this burden well. And when we try to save ourselves, we end up actually destroying ourselves. And so God will pull us into trial to show that we cannot save ourselves. We need somebody beyond us. We need a savior. We need the true and only God. We need him to come to us. It makes us long for heaven, suffering does, to realize this, this earth is not our home. This is not where we belong. We are sojourners. We are still traveling through the land as Abraham was. And Hebrews says that what that suffering did was made Abraham long for a better home. Not Canaan, but heaven. One whose builders and foundation is God. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 tells us. Suffering then produces in Abraham a desire for the true promised land of heaven. Not just the temporary one of Canaan through which heaven would be ultimately revealed. It produces character that you won't fall victim to sin. It produces steadfastness that we won't give up running this race for Christ. It produces hope that we would see what true life is. God is eternal life. And as we look to him, we receive him. And on and on and on and on it goes. The psalmist tells us that God is with us, that we have the divine. What could harm us? But we see that in the midst of trial. And so nobody in here would say, praise the Lord, blessings for trials. Yeah. Right, But like the New Testament authors implore us to think like that. And there's Old Testament stories like the one we're in right now that's going to show us what trials do. Like, like they are good for our character and who we are. And so God calls Abram, boom, right into trial. I love what Tabidi uh, Anyabwile said at a conference I was at this past summer. Uh, if you don't know Tabidi's work, look him up. He's a faithful brother. You won't be able to spell his name correctly, but just try it and Google will correct you, okay? He said, next time suffering comes, say to it, welcome, my dear friend, produce in me the glory that God has designed. I love that. Welcome, friend. Without Christ, suffering has no, no real purpose. Suffering is really stupid without Christ. Why suffer? What What is the point of suffering? There's something wrong, we say, but once we see that Christ does suffering, even a great enemy, because listen, one day there will be no more suffering, so we know that it's not an ultimate good, but God takes what Satan tries to use for evil and instead uses it for his good, so even suffering now is now a friend that can produce in us the character of Christ. So point one, following Jesus doesn't promise to be easy, friends. I would be lying to you if I said that it was. 
Following Jesus sometimes takes sacrifice. It takes our suffering that we may be men and women of character because he's trying to kill the self-dependent, self-sovereign you. Praise the Lord for not allowing that to try to maintain in you because if you're honest with yourself, you know that it's your pride that's hurting everyone around you anyway. You know that it's your self-dependency that actually is fracturing relationships or not allowing you the peace that you want to feel. You place the burden upon yourself to be Savior, and it crushes you, and it crushes those around you. God wants to kill that. But fire that melts away the dross and leaves the pure gold is still fire nonetheless. Suffering is not easy, but God uses it oftentimes. And what he also uses it for is to test our submission to him. And then when we fail this test, he allows us to come back to him again. And we get this relationship with God where we are not self-sovereigns, but we let him be God in our life. We submit to him. And so my question is, how is God doing this in your life even right now? What suffering is occurring in your life that may be trying to stretch you, where God may be trying to grow you to make a new you in some ways? Maybe it's been a couple of days, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a whole season, years even, of suffering at your job or in your family or, or around you or, or even in your emotional, in your heart. Like, how is God wanting to use that to produce in you the glory that he has designed for you? He's designed glory for you, friends, but it often comes through suffering. Are you walking through the valley of the shadow of death? Listen, all of us are. Are you walking through it with him? Because he will then lead you out of that into green pastures, into eternity. He'll produce in you what he wants to see. So suffering is a good gift. So God calls Abraham into suffering to grow him, take his faith, make it pure, that he would be released from the burden of self. And then let's see what Abraham does. So this is our good friend here. We should really love this story for multiple reasons. So verse 11. We're going to read the rest of chapter 12 now. <clears throat> when he was about to enter Egypt... He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham, and he, had, uh, sorry, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why do you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Is Abram the promised seed? <laughs> nope. A resounding no. Our hopes are dashed again, right, in this epic called redemption. So just to recap, look at this uh, chart that I have. So last week, here's what God promised Abram, to dwell in the land, to make his name great, to, to bless those who bless him, to curse those who curse him, which is actually a sign of protection. God's going to protect Abram. If anybody tries to mess with Abram, God's going to curse them. 
right? To be a blessing to the nations, etc. And then let's look at how Abraham actually lived that out in the life. He went to Egypt instead of dwelling in the land. He was humbled because Pharaoh, a pagan king, instead of Abram's name being great, was like, what are you doing? Get out of here. Who was Abram, right? God, he rejected the promise of God's protection and tried to take it into his own hands. Instead of being a blessing to all the earth, he cursed the earth with plagues. Great plagues, it says. The Pharaoh and all of his household had great plagues because of Abraham's lack of faith. And instead of allowing God to fulfill the promise of an offspring, he was willing to give up Sarah so that she would be protected himself. If Abraham's playing golf, he's doing really well. He's at negative five. Besides that, in every other sport, he's miserably failing, right? Like, like Abraham is not the promised seed here. Now, we know the beautiful thing is that Christ, the true seed, will fulfill all these one day to perfection. But what we also know is that God wants to use us as agents of redemption. He wants to work in and through us in this story. And Abram kind of messed it all up in some ways, right? He did not walk in these because the minute that trial or pressure came, think of what led to this, a famine, a severe famine. He skirts right out of God's uh, provision, right out of God's promise, rejects it in a lot of ways. Following Christ will produce in us trials or tests to test the genuineness of our faith. Are we in this for Christ or are we in this for ourselves? Because this all sounds great. Verse 10 doesn't sound that great. Are we in this for ourselves or do we really believe that God is who he says he is, worthy of glory, worthy of worship, worthy of praise? Notice he doesn't trust God, so he fulfills it by himself. Then he lies about who his wife is, being a deceiver. And what is he doing? He's trying to take the promises of God in his own hand and trying to control it in that way. Abraham is deciding that he knows what is good and he knows what is evil. No, 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 no. It's evil if we go to Pharaoh. So I'm going to tell you to lie. you got to do it this way. I'm going to manipulate this because I know what's good and evil. I know that Pharaoh is evil. What a wicked, evil man. And when he sees you, he's just going to kill me and take take her. How does he know this? Does he talk to Pharaoh? Is him and Pharaoh boys? I mean, because Abram's from Ur, the Chaldeans. How does he know how Pharaoh will act? Does Abram know good and evil? No, but he thinks he does, just like all of us do a lot of times. And so he tries to take the matter into his own hands. Because look at how so evil this Pharaoh is that Abram projects in verse 12. But in verse 17, Pharaoh is the one that's listening to God. God comes in plagues and says, "Uh uh-uh, this ain't your wife. He says, I hear you, God. Here you go, Abram. Take your wife and don't lie to me again, right? Because I'm going to honor what I hear God telling me to do. I'm going to listen to him. Pharaoh is actually the one that's listening to God instead of Abram. But Pharaoh is so evil, right? He gave Sarai back. Actually, this pagan king in verse 19 sends Abraham back into the mission. Go back to where you're supposed to be, he tells him. And then, as we'll read in a second, Abraham goes back into Canaan. It's the pagan king that sends him back on mission with God. This this evil, wicked king actually is the one that's following God here. He's the one that's kind of being obedient. And let's not let Sarai off the hook either, okay? Because even though she's silent in the story, her silence, just like Adam's silence, speaks volumes. Bruce Walkie once again says this, Although God promised to make Abraham's seed abundant and to curse those who curse Abraham, Abraham fears for his life. Sarah pragmatically consents. Their philosophy is better defiled than dead. This is not a philosophy that establishes God's kingdom in a pagan world. I mean, but... Can, can I be honest? I feel like that a lot of times. 
better defiled than dead. I'll sacrifice, right? Because am I sure that this is the true word of God? Like, can I really trust God and his promises? Or when stuff hits the fan and it gets kind of hard, should I just take matters into my own hands and try to be my own self-sovereign? I'm Abraham in a lot of ways. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think that we are Abraham. Notice in verse 13, Abraham is literally willing to sacrifice Sarah. If you look at that verse again, he is literally willing to give up. Here's your life that my life may be saved is literally what the word that Abram says. Anybody want him as a husband? But he's like the father of faith, right? Like the one who we're supposed to be following. Abraham fails the trial of faith because he is willing to sacrifice others' lives for the sake of his own rather than sacrificing his own life for the sake of others. Abraham fails this trial of faith because he puts himself up as holy, puts himself up as good. And here's the truth. Abraham is not the promised seed, and we know that. If we know the scriptures, we know Abraham is not the promised seed. But friends, come on. What a savior we have in our King Jesus. Friends, what a promise seed that we have. Unlike Abram, Jesus would never sacrifice his bride for his own skin. And the exact opposite expression, Jesus actually walks into trial, walks into temptation, walks into pain for us. Instead of giving up his wife and saying, your life for my life, Jesus takes his life and gives it up for our life. Jesus is the true and better husband because he is willing to lay down his life for his wife that you and I, the bride of Christ, those who have believed in Jesus may be protected, that God is our refuge and our strength. We only get refuge as some Somebody's willing to fight for us, and that is Jesus. He is willing to die that you may be safe, that you may be protected. This is what Abram was supposed to do, but he failed it. But that's okay, because we don't have to look to Abram to be our model of substitution. No, we have Jesus for that, the true and the better husband. Even more so, think about Jesus' life. He's baptized in Matthew chapter 3, and it's this glorious moment. All these promises and blessings are given. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit flutters down like a dove and rests on Jesus, right? And there's all these promises. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Everybody's looking. There's all this beauty, all these covenants being made. And then the text says, immediately God drew him into the wilderness. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus faces really the deepest type of famine, 40 days without food or water. The difference between Abram and Jesus, though, is that there was not a famine in the land. So Jesus could have very easily have eaten if he wanted to, but he chose voluntarily to subject himself to what God was trying to do in him to to make him show that he is the true model of submission, of obedience, that he will go through whatever trial it takes that he may fulfill the will of God. And so Jesus there, not only could he have eaten, he literally, Satan said, could have turned the rocks into bread at that moment which Abram couldn't have done. Even more than that, he was being tempted by Satan. Like, Satan doesn't appear in the Abraham narrative. It's just a famine. But Jesus is tempted by the devil himself, the deceiver, and he is standing there in the middle of this physical famine, an emotional famine, and a spiritual famine where Satan is attacking him, and he subjects himself to it that he may overcome it for you and for me. Jesus is the better Abram. That when famine comes, he doesn't run away. He doesn't abort the mission of God. He stays. Why? 
Because Jesus is our true example and Jesus is our true substitute. An example for us to follow that Jesus stayed no matter what and our substitute that when we, like Abraham, fumble the ball, there is a Savior that is willing to save us and give us his righteousness. Abraham, or Jesus, sorry, fulfilled that for us. When we decide to flee into Egypt, which is always a metaphor in scripture for sin, when we decide to run into sin because we can't take the pressure that's going on around us, we have a savior that did not do that. That if we believe in him, he can give us, he can accredit to our account his righteousness. He can give us the freedom that our hearts desire and that our hearts literally need or else we become dead. We become self-sovereigns. Think about this. This is one of the most beautiful things though because I don't want to end here. Okay, there's a tiny bit more. All throughout Scripture so far, we have all these examples of people who have really just kind of fumbled the ball, right? <clears throat> Adam, the promise seed, nope. Is Abel, Cain, the promise seed, definitely not, right? And we get this over and over and over again. But think about Adam. You see Adam's life, he kind of messes it all up, and then you don't really see Adam say almost anything else after that. Or you think about Eve, and maybe there's a little bit of redemption in Eve. It looks like she might trust God, but we don't really know. We see Eve, she messes up, that's almost the end of the story, We see people like Cain clearly drop the ball, never repent. We see people like uh, 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 the Tower of Babel, right? They clearly never repented. They just got scattered. That was the end of the story. And even our hero so far of the story, Noah, how does the story end? With him drunk and naked and cursing his son. And that's how it ends. We don't see Noah's life after that, right? But Abraham begins to get 3D for us. And we start to see more. See, Abraham... Is not only our example of faith, because he believes the promises of God goes out. He's not only our example of kind of messing up that faith, which we also do, but Abraham is also our example of repentance. Because in chapter 13, Abraham goes back into the promised land. See, everybody else, the story just kind of ends, and we don't see what's happening. But with this story, we get a man who actually goes back into the promises of God. He repents. He turns from Egypt and goes back to what God was calling him to. Repent, for some reason, is a dirty word in our culture. All it means is to turn around. It literally just means to turn around. And so Abram is walking this way in Egypt, in sin. Oops, that was a mistake. And he turns back around and goes back into the promised land. Not only this, we see that in chapter 18, Abram builds an altar on the southern border. Remember, we mentioned that last week. And so he built an altar on the northern border. He built it in the middle. Then it got hard and he ran off to Egypt. But then he came back and finished building it on the southern border, taking a central possession of the land. Here will be your land, God says. And Abraham, to some extent, does that. He also separates from Lot in chapter 13. Remember, leave your kinsmen. Every time it uses the name Lot, it also calls him a kinsman or a kindred. Because it's trying to remind you, Abram did not leave. He did not fully follow God. He kind of had a little bit of a security blanket. But not only did he separate from Lot, he actually humbled himself before Lot and told Lot, you can have the pick of whatever land you want. And then within that, God re-promises to Abram the land again. If you look in chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, we're not going to read 13 today, obviously, but that's kind of what we're covering too. In chapters 16 and 17, God re-promises him the land. This is the land, the land you're standing in right now. Not Egypt where you just were, okay, but this land again, I'm re-promising you. Why? Because Abraham repents and decides to trust God again, and God is a God of second and third and ninth and 700 chances like we'll see in Abram's life. Because this isn't the only sin we're gonna see in Abram, but it's also not the only time we're gonna see him repent and come back to God. 
See, God is not this God who demands of us perfection and the second that we fumble the ball, he casts us aside. No, instead, and we see it fully expressed through Jesus, he knows that he's going to call you to something. You're going to drop the ball, and he says, just come back to me. And then when you come back, he re-promises once again. If you're willing to come back to Christ to submit your life to him again. In many ways, as Martin Luther said, the Christian life is a life that's marked with repentance. What I would argue or even add into that is that the Christian life is a life marked with repentance, but the Christian life is a life marked with less and less repentance and more and more repentance. More and more repentance because you realize the depth of your depravity. See, right now you're probably just saying, oh, I'm a little bit prideful. Oh, I'm a little bit self-sufficient. Oh, I a little bit have an idol of comfort. And then God shows you the idol of comfort and he starts ripping away the onion. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you realize my heart is deceitful above all things. And you realize how messed up you are. So in a lot of ways, you repent more and more. But hopefully for the Christian, you also repent less and less. Because God starts sanctifying you. He makes you more like Jesus. In fact, Abram, for most of his journey now, doesn't just completely distrust God like this. Now we'll see it over and over again. But God is doing a good work, right? You repent more and more and less and less. God makes you more and more into who he's creating you to be. And Abram is our first real example of repentance. He turns around and he trusts God again. And God reestablishes the promise. Let's look at just two verses here. And then we're done. In chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. Says, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not this whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And in many ways, what Abraham is doing here is he's fully trusting God. He's showing humility. I believe that God is going to give me the promised land. So instead of having all this strife, I'm going to create peace because I just trust that God knows what he's doing. He didn't say it a lot. Hey, you know what, man? Uh, You should probably go down to Egypt now, man. They're pretty cool there. (laughs) Right? Like, no, he says, hey, hey, you know what? I kind of made a mistake. I'm going to submit myself to this and trust God. Bruce Walkie, once again, says this. The magnanimity of the patriarch of the clan and the uncle of the orphan is truly remarkable. The social superior humbles himself before the inferior to preserve peace, thereby proving himself to be the spiritual superior. Abraham's faith gave him the freedom to be generous. And once again, friends, we see the true nature of Jesus within this. The spiritual, social, emotional, divine superior humbles himself to the inferior, you and me, and gives us the choice of the land. You're going to go to Egypt? You're going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah? Or are you going to choose true life, eternity, heaven, the true Canaan, the better Canaan? And he humbles himself, and he actually sacrifices himself that we may be able to make this decision. Once again, Jesus is our true and greater Abraham. But Abraham is a great example of repentance for us. Nonetheless, he comes back into the promises of God. One more quote from St. Keller, I mean Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God. (laughs) He says this. Jesus essentially says to us, I put on you the burden of following me, but I have already paid the price so that when you fail, you will be forgiven. 
I have taken off the burdens that other people have. I have removed the burden of earning your own salvation through your striving and effort. I've removed the burden of guilt or shame for past failures. I've taken off the burden of having to prove yourself worthy of love. I am therefore the only Lord and master who, if you find me, will satisfy you, and if you fail me, will forgive you. Man, blessing to the Lamb of God. Amen? This is our Jesus who if you find him, he will fully satisfy you. Even if you're in the midst of suffering, man, who cares? You have God with you. He is your refuge. He is your strength. He is your joy. He is true life. He is your peace. Not situations or circumstances. Jesus is our peace. He is who we want. He will fully satisfy us. And when we fail that God, he will fully forgive us because he already paid for it on the cross for us. The question is, Are we like Abram, and do we just kind of stop the story at chapter 12, or do we repent and come back to God over and over and over again? Friends, when you mess up and you fumble the ball, which you will, cling to the cross, cling to the cross, cling to the Savior, because his blood covers over our offenses, and it makes us new over and over and over again. And just like God re-promised in chapter 13 to Abram, he will re-promise to you too. And he will keep doing it as you keep coming back to him. And so what trial is God doing in your life right now? And are you kind of balking at it? Is it hard? Would you rather have comfort now than the king of the universe later? Where are you at in this? We all fail, I know. Where have you failed? Are you coming back to Christ? Are you trying to cover it with your own works or perfection? Are you trying to to be your own savior? Friends, we don't know good and evil. We're not good saviors but we have a good savior. Allow our true and better husband to sacrifice his life for you, that he may allow you to live freely in this story called grace. I love you guys, let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. 